the old pilot's plain tales. Uncle Jeff. Some time ago, Nick Kidd from the Isle of Wight sent me a family memoir written by his uncle about his wartime flying in the Royal Air Force during the Second World War. Geoffrey Arthur Kidd and his twin brother John weren't poster boys for the RAF, but two from the hundreds of brave men who took to the skies in the night to fight a war not of their making, but one they were determined to win. Jeff's detailed description of the missions he and his brother undertook make fascinating reading, and I thank Nick for letting me turn his uncle's deeds into a tale. Jeff's story starts when his crew first came together to train on the Whitley, an aircraft that was almost obsolete by the start of the war and was retired from operational service in 1942. He joined Geordie Abbott, bomb aimer, Jimmy Thompson, navigator, Roy Ash, wireless operator, Doug Wilkinson and Paddy Irwin, both gunners. They trained initially by day, learning how to escape the aircraft if things didn't go well, doing circuits and dropping practice bombs. Hurricanes would practice attacks and they would go into their corkscrew defensive turns, guided by the gunners with calls like... Fighter, coming in on starboard. Stand by. Corkscrew, starboard, go. The old Whitley only had one turret, so the boys had to take their turns. Their night training was more difficult. Over a United Kingdom that was entirely blacked out, no visible lights from towns or villages. The only lights visible were from searchlights, helping to guide lost aircraft using the darky system. The little-known darky system was a system that used a special radio frequency to triangulate the aircraft using direction finders. You called out, Hello, darky! Hello, darky! Hello, darky! and gave your code for your home station. The nearest station would take over and instruct you to put your navigation lights on. Then the Royal Observer Corps and searchlight batteries would look for you. If they found you, they would raise their light straight up and then lower them to point at the next guiding light, and in that way they would light the path home. Pundit was another way of finding their way. Jeff mentions them in his story. There were very low-intensity red-flashing lights known as pundits using Morse code. These were located near airfields, and a list issued to the navigator could be used to identify where we were. The night exercises followed a similar pattern of cross-countries, bombing and fighter affiliations, with assessments, criticism and analysis when completed. Nearing the end of our course, we were listed to operate a nickel. This was a full-scale op over enemy territory, dropping leaflets over Rennes in France. Some of our aircraft were shot at, but for us, the whole trip went smoothly. On our return, we were debriefed, and after handing our parachutes back in, we went off to breakfast and bed. When the course was finished, we went off to RAF Dishforth to fly our operational type, the Halifax. Paddy Irwin had deserted us, so we got a replacement gunner, Jim Hewitt from the Royal Canadian Air Force. We called him Paddy for the rest of his time with us, and we got a flight engineer as well, Jimmy Roper. 
We could now operate above 10,000 feet where the use of oxygen became vital. On one of our navigation exercises, Geordie went aft to the Elson chemical toilet and despite being warned, he wouldn't take an oxygen bottle. He collapsed below the mid-upper turret where, luckily, Paddy saw him and gave him oxygen. He revived, but as he did, he lashed out at poor Paddy, but luckily he hadn't recovered his strength or was aware of where he was. Eventually our posting came through, and we went to Thamesford in Bedfordshire for special duties. Here we found out that this meant clandestine operations, dropping spies and supplies to the underground groups in any of the occupied territories in Europe. Supplies meant containers, packed with sten guns, explosives, detonators and goods from first aid kits to vehicle wheels. The aircraft had been modified. They were missing the mid-upper turret and had a large hole cut in the floor covered with a divided door to allow the agents, that we called Joes, and supplies to be dropped with safety. Without a gun to use, our mid-gunner, Paddy, was sent on a dispatcher's course so that he could help launch the Joes and push the load through the hatch. We went in at low level, hoping to avoid interception, and in moonlight so that we could see the ground for navigation. We needed pinpoint accuracy to stand a chance of finding our drop zones, so while Paddy was away, we learned the techniques we would be using. We needed to find our way to a single field in enemy territory where a reception committee would be awaiting our arrival. They would have three handheld torches and would direct their beams towards the noise of our engines as we approached. When we found the field and saw the lights, we would acknowledge with a single letter in Morse using our downward ident light. A fourth torch would reply with a prearranged letter in Morse which would identify them and our drop could begin. We flew a low racetrack pattern with undercarriage and flaps down to keep the drop area small and to make it safer for our Joes. We lined up on the three lights and on our first run the bomb aimer would drop the load from the bomb bay. We repeated the circuit and on the second run over the lights Geordie, the bomb aimer, would signal to Paddy by the hatch using a green light to launch the load or help the Joes through the hatch. Dropping into wind over the first torch meant the chute's opening would slow the containers down and they would drift on the wind back to the middle of the field. We dropped at only 800 feet, a safe height on a static line but giving as little chance as possible to be seen from the ground. After a couple of training trips, including one with the special S-phones, uh, and we were ready to begin our tour of operations. Now, the S-phone was a special duplex radio telephone developed for the Special Operations Executive, the SOE, during the war. It was low power, but highly directional, so when directed at an aircraft, it had a range of 30 miles, but elsewhere the range was less than one mile, so that monitoring stations would have difficulty locating it. Being duplex, it allowed direct two-way voice communication and it was used to provide a secure channel for the exchange of orders and information. Jeff continues. On the 30th of April 1944, we flew our first operational mission. 
The briefing was a very individual affair. Army intelligence gave us information about the target using large detailed maps. We got particular information about the field where the reception committee would be and our load. RAF intelligence talked about the flak areas we could expect and we were given the colours of the day so we could identify ourselves to friendly fighters or to anti-aircraft guns by firing very flares if we were shot at by our own side. We were issued with our escape packs containing currency for all the countries we would fly over, specially printed silk maps and a few pet pills, caffeine tablets, to be used if we needed to on a long run. Finally, we got the weather brief on winds and conditions over the drop zone and at base for our return. After that, Jimmy, Geordie and I planned our route, picking features that we hoped would be easy to spot. We often picked water as a fix because it usually showed up well under moonlight. After the planning, we checked out the aircraft and its equipment. As work had to be done on our machine, it needed to be flight checked so that the whole crew were able to make an airborne check of everything. After return, our aeroplane was refueled and loaded for the night's operation. Climbing out that night over Littlehampton and over the channel, Jimmy was able to use G to give us accurate fixes. Now, G was a chain of stations that transmitted continuously and were one millisecond in transmission time apart, about uh, 300 kilometres in distance. On the aircraft, using an oscilloscope, the series of transmitted signals could be seen and the phase difference compared to give a series of intercepting arcs and therefore a position. Back to Jeff's story. When the G faded due to German jamming, we descended to very low level for the rest of the way to the field. Crossing the French coast, we could see searchlights from St. Valerie and Dieppe looking for us. Where the lights crossed, we ducked underneath and fixed our position. Carefully, point to point, we passed fixes and Jimmy was able to plot our position. Eventually, we arrived at our final, carefully chosen pinpoint, where we set course directly for the rendezvous, timing the run with care. Towards the end of the run, Geordie and I could see the lights on the ground as we expected. When the correct letter showed, we knew we were in the right place, and we slowed, preparing to drop our load. Exactly like our training, I lined up on the lights and set my compass. Giving corrections, Geordie would call left-left or right, using two words for left to avoid confusion. Bomb doors open, when over the first light, Geordie dropped the containers. Once more round and Paddy pushed out the load through the hatch floor and we were done. We still had to get home, avoiding flak areas, but having delivered our loads successfully, some of the pressure eased. Soon after crossing the coast, we were in G cover and with Eureka, a transponder system that used a pair of directional antennas on the aircraft to home onto a beacon guiding crews back to their base. After a seven-hour flight, we flew round the DREM circuit lights, which funneled us in for a safe landing. Now, those were developed at RAF DREM. The DREM lights were an outer white and inner blue circle of lights positioned around an airfield that led an aircraft round to a funnel of white lights that in turn drew the pilot towards the end of the runway.
Jeff continues. After landing, we got a coffee and a tot of rum before our debrief. Then it was back to the mess for an operational breakfast of bacon and eggs, then to the billet for sleep. We were very satisfied to have been so successful on our first trip, and within a week our success was confirmed by intelligence when they got a message from the drop field. Now, Jeff's twin brother had mirrored Jeff's progress, and they were now both engaged on similar missions. Jeff continues... On one unusual operation, my twin brother and I were selected to operate a trip where two aircraft were required to deliver to a single target. We briefed together and then parted to plan our separate flights. He would leave half an hour after to avoid the risk of a collision. We had an extra crew member on board, an American, who would operate the S-phones. Once again, we found the target, and when the drop was complete, we continued until our passenger said he had finished, but he told me that the people on the ground wanted to talk to me. Using the aircraft intercom, I answered their questions. Uh, What aircraft are you flying? A Halifax, I replied. Uh, Are more supplies coming tonight? Yes, my brother is about half an hour behind. These were easy questions, but the last one was, we have been waiting for four years, four years and a half. When are you going to invade and free us? Not so easy. At the time, the preparations for D-Day were obviously well advanced, so I hazarded a guess at a couple of months. Their response was one we all heard, and I'm sure we'll never forget. With their song fading in the background, it was time to leave the dropping zone clear for my brother. On the 18th of July, trips were listed for both me and my brother. We went through the normal preparations and set off before dark so as to reach the coast in full darkness. The route was into the country south of the River Loire, and this night we were followed by a fighter dropping flares trying to pick us up. We flew lower than usual so not to come between the flares and the fighter and be seen. Close to Nevia's uh, lights came on in the town and I felt that someone was trying to guide us on our way. We reached the RV, found the target and dropped the load. After returning, we debriefed and went to bed as usual but I was awakened a little later to find an airman with an officer supervising packing up my brother's equipment and clothes. My heart sank. Oh, didn't you know, they said, your brother didn't return last night. I took over the packing and then went to look for his bike by the Nissan hut. It had already been taken, a bit of a tradition when a crew went missing. Later we found that he had collided with a liberator over the target area where they were both supplying the same group. After the invasion, the French underground needed extra support, and which meant some very long trips. One we made to the south of Lyon took nine and a half hours. By the time we got back, we had already been posted as missing. 
and I've never felt so physically tired since, and still recall my struggle to get to my billet, only a short walk. On another trip, they lit fires instead of torches, and the Morse reply was barely visible. As we made our approach, we could see vehicles moving. Then, in the middle of the lights and signals, there was a lot of concentrated flak with tracer all around us. Hey, Skip, it's bouncing off the fuselage, Jimmy shouted. To get out of range, I quickly pulled up the wheels and flaps and the aircraft sank towards the river, so we were lucky to get away and return home. Thirty-eight operations flown, over 250 hours, all without any autopilot, always flown with the same crew. Only six failures to drop. Jimmy, our navigator, normally a happy, cheerful soul, had become introspective and morose. But when we finished our last trip, he quickly returned to his normal self. I only discovered the tension I was under when, a little later, I was travelling on a train at night. Waking from a nap, I was sure I was being shot at and prepared to take evasive action as if I was flying. Then I realised it was only sparks from the steam engine, and I felt lucky that I was in an empty compartment so I could recover myself. We dispersed to training units, but as a team we had collected two distinguished flying crosses and a distinguished flying medal. Yet none of us could have flown without the dedication of the ground crews, for never once did my aircraft fail me. When I visited my brother's grave in Marigny-l'Église near Avalon some forty years later, I explained why I was there to the mayor, and he took me to the crash site. At a memorial for the members of the underground who had been shot by the Germans at St. Aubin-la-Ferte. After speaking to an old marquisade about our flights, I was invited to lead the parade. It was good to know our efforts were still appreciated. <laughs>